Well, uh, quite a, a number of you have been coming up to me asking where I was on the 4th of July. Uh, some of you know, you folks who've been around here for a while, I normally get to preach the 4th of July. They choose that. I'm the victim. And this 4th of July, I was not here. I was hiding. And after England's work in the World Cup, soccer, I'm hiding still. We are continuing, and actually England did pretty good, the best in 50 years, but we're continuing this series, Games People Play, and we're looking at different games and seeing what principles we can learn from them. This weekend, it's hide and seek. How many of you have ever played hide and seek? Just about um, all of us. It, you could say it's the oldest game in history because it started in the Garden of Eden. You ever thought about that? Because Adam hid and God came looking for him, although, of course, it wasn't a game. But it can be traced back as a game, way back to two centuries before Christ in Greek culture. Shakespeare mentions hide-and-seek twice in his writings in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's while playing hide-and-seek that Lucy steps into Narnia. And, and I don't have to explain it. It's, it's such a familiar game. Uh, one person uh, counts to 10 or 50 or 500 if they're really merciful. And then they, they, this person is called it. And they normally shout out something you're quite familiar with. And if you are, join me. Ready or not? You've been playing the game recently, haven't you? Ready or not, here I come. Well, this weekend... We're thinking about a man who played hide-and-seek uh, with the Lord, running and hiding from God, but we're looking, too, at a God who persistently sought him out. And his name, of course, was Jonah. Maybe you're familiar with the story. Uh, if not, let me uh, remind you or share it with you. There are four chapters in the book of Jonah. Chapter 1 God calls Jonah to go and prophesy to Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, the Assyrians, the enemies of Israel. And Jonah doesn't want to do that. So he books himself a cruise to Tarshish and there's a great storm and he's thrown overboard and he is swallowed by a big fish. End of chapter one. Chapter two, uh, Jonah has a prayer meeting from the belly of the big fish. He kind of repents and then the fish throws up, basically. It, it vomits Jonah out onto the beach. End of chapter 2. Chapter 3, uh, he does go to Nineveh, and Nineveh becomes revival town. And the king repents, and the people repent, and the horses repent. I don't know how the, that works out. And um, they have this kind of Monty Python-type scene with all the animals in sackcloth. It's kind of bizarre. And then chapter 4, you'd expect celebration, wouldn't you? But there's no celebration. Let's have a look. Chapter 4 of Jonah. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat at a place east of the city. 
There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. Jonah was very happy about the vine, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said, I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? I've decided I don't like airport announcements. Uh, Much of the time I don't understand what the person is saying and every time I fly into Denver and get on that train, I get told off. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? You get on the train and suddenly the voice says, please stand clear of the doors. You are delaying the departure of this train. Emphasis on the word you. And even though it's not me blocking the doors, I feel irrationally guilty somehow. I don't, I don't like airport announcements. At one time I was um, invited to speak at a church in San Jose. And I was... Um, I was um, Uh, in Los Angeles airport waiting for three hours to connect, sitting on one of those glorious plastic bucket seats designed by demonized people. And and suddenly I heard my name being called over the airport tannoy system, paging paging passenger Lucas, paging Phoenix passenger Lucas, please go immediately to gate 27 where your plane is waiting to depart. You are delaying the departure of this plane. And like, it's me again. So I jump up and I grab my bags and I'm sweating and I'm running through the airport. Where's gate 27? Where's gate 27? And then suddenly I realized I'm not going to Phoenix. I'm on my way to San Jose. And if you get my drift, I know the way to San Jose. I heard my name called and I immediately ran in the opposite direction. Take a snapshot of that scene. 2,700 years ago, around 750 BC, a man called Jonah heard his name called, not by an irate announcer, but by the God of the universe, and he jumped up and ran from the purposes of God. Chapter 4 is something of a surprise because Jonah has just preached one of the shortest and most successful sermons in the history of sermons, one sentence, just one sentence. How many think it'd be a good idea if sermons were just one sentence? That's very rude of you, I have to say. But a whole city repents. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, he preaches, and a whole city comes to repentance. I mean, you would think that Jonah would say, wow, awesome, I'm going to use that one again. but he's greatly displeased and angry. There are three literary devices in this text that show the writer really wants us to know that Jonah's mad and he's mad with God. First of all, there's a device called a figura etymologia. 
a figura etymologia. You might want to write that down so you can impress your friends. You can just casually drop it in over coffee this week. You could say like, by the way, did you know that in Jonah there's a figura etymologia? That'll really go down well. What is a figura etymologia? It's a double emphasis. And so, and it's used throughout Jonah. So in chapter 3, we have proclaim the proclamation. In chapter 2, the sailors feared a great fear. And in this particular text, it, was, it, it comes out like this. Jonah was angry with a great anger. Figura etymologia. Jonah boiled over with anger. The second device is the use of the word great. The word great is consistently used throughout this book. And so Nineveh is a great city. And the fish is a great fish. And the storm is a great storm. And Jonah is angry with a great anger. And then thirdly, this was an anger that led to utter despair because Jonah says, Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. And in the Hebrew text, you don't get it in the English translation. In the Hebrew text, there is a punctuation pause after he says that for effect. It's like, let me put it like this. And Jonah said, Lord, take away my life. Pause for effect. Music in the background. Dun, dun, dun. You see, the writer really wants us to know that Jonah is angry. My brothers and sisters, there are times when we feel angry, not just at life, but at God. And we can be frank about that. Jonah is not alone. The Bible is filled with exclamations of anger. Look at Jeremiah. Boy, he was on an emotional roller coaster. Jeremiah 20. Sing to the Lord. Give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. And then look. Cursed be the day I was born. What? May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning, a battle cry at noon, because he didn't kill me in the womb, with my mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? This guy is ticked. He's angry. We get angry at times. But I want you to see something that is so important. It says, Jonah was angry and he prayed. You see, anger is not antithetical to prayer. You don't have to get rid of your anger or pretend that it doesn't exist in order to pray. You can bring your anger, even anger and frustration with God, if that's the way it is. You can bring that into prayer. Philip Yancey says that one of the things that this story teaches us is that you can pretty much say anything to God. He's looking for sincerity of communication anyway. Jonah was angry and he prayed to the Lord. So what do we learn from this story? Well, if you're following in the bulletin, follow with me. First of all, when we hide, when we hide, God comes seeking, looking for us with love. When we hide, God comes seeking, looking for us with love. Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, but instead he heads to Tarshish via Joppa. Now that's an interesting thing. You say, why? Joppa is just outside modern Tel Aviv. 
Well, Joppa, 800 years later, is the place where Peter received a dream informing him that those wretched Gentiles, which by the way includes us, could be welcomed into the kingdom. Joppa was the place of radical inclusion. And Jonah was being called to go to Nineveh and draw them into the purposes of God. But he doesn't do it. He heads 1,500 miles in the exact opposite direction. He is sent northeast, but he heads southwest. God speaks, but Jonah is silent. God says, get up. And if you read the book, Jonah constantly goes down. He's standing in the presence of the Lord, and yet he sets out from God's presence. He's not going to obey. Sheldon Blank, who's a rabbi and biblical scholar, he said, what is Tarshish? In the story of Jonah, it is anywhere, anywhere but the right place. It's the opposite direction. It's the direction a person takes when he turns his back on his destiny. I wonder whether some of us are doing that. We're running. I want you to know that if you're running, the response of God to Jonah shows that he, he is passionately in pursuit of you. I was um, reading a thing about British people the other day, five things about British people. And by the way, these messages go out um, on radio in the UK. Um, so next week, my British friends will be hearing this, and so I'll be hiding again. <laughs> uh, British people, number one, they have an ability to talk at length about the weather. That's true. God invented the weather to give British people something to talk about. Uh, secondly, British people like to make a cup of tea in response to a crisis. Oh, we're under nuclear attack. Put the kettle on. Uh, British people grumble throughout a meal, but they don't tell the, the, the waiting staff because they don't want to cause a fuss. Uh, British people make a cup of tea when they have no time to drink it. I actually did that this morning. But the fifth thing is the British typical stiff upper lip. What's a stiff upper lip? Well, if you're emotional, your lip starts to quiver. I couldn't do that. I've been practicing, but it's not working. The stiff upper lip says, we can, we can push through. We're stoic. We're passionless. God is not like that. When I was in Bible college 300 years ago, they taught me the doctrine of immutability. Immutability is the idea that God doesn't get passionate about anything. I don't believe it. Hosea prophesied about a God whose heart churned within him over his people. They provoked him. They grieved him. He was like a husband that Israel cheated on. He's like a compassionate mother. He is depicted as the ecstatic father who runs out to a wayward son. He's grieved, angry, pleased, joyful, moved by pity. Sometimes in the Bible, God sings and claps and dances over his people. We may hide. But this God, who, if I can put it like this, this God who is crazy about you, and me. He comes looking. He's the hound of heaven. Francis Thompson was a devout Roman Catholic who trained for the priesthood and then for medicine, then abandoned it and became destitute, selling matches on the streets of London, 18th century London. He got sick, started taking opium, and became addicted, a drug addict, 
and his life was a mess, and he wrote the poem, The Hound of Heaven. It's very long, I can't share it all with you, but just a couple of lines. He says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the mist of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, up vistaed hopes, I sped and shot precipitated down titanic glooms of chasmed fears. From those strong feet that followed, followed after. And at the end of the poem, he has God saying, Rise, clasp my hand and come. Halts by me that footfall. Is my gloom, after all, shade of his hand outstretched caressingly? John Ortberg says, Redeeming is what God is into. He's the finder of directionally challenged sheep the searcher of missing coins, the embracer of foolish prodigal children. His favorite department is lost and found. Running? Why not stop? Secondly, anger really can be righteous. Anger really can be righteous. Jonah cared deeply about Israel. And he hated the Assyrians, and for good reason. Nineveh, you, you've probably been hearing about the city of Mosul um, in the headlines and the, the war that's been going on there, 250 miles north of Baghdad. That's Nineveh. Nineveh's ruins are right there. And these Assyrians were terrible people. Terrible people. I mean, think ISIS and worse. Hayim Lewis, a biblical scholar and historian, he said, the Assyrians were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. They were the pitiless power-crazed foe. They showed no quarter in battle, uprooting entire peoples in their fury for conquest. They extinguished the northern kingdom of Israel. For Jonah, Nineveh then, was no ordinary city. It carried doom-laden, tragic memories. It stood as a symbol of evil incarnate. And Jonah's called to go and preach to them. And here's the deal. He hated them so much, he didn't want them to repent. He hated them. And one of the reasons he maybe hated them is because he was worried that if they got blessed, Israel would be judged. He's passionate about his nation. He's, he's angry. I think we need to get angry at times. We're bombarded with images from around the world of pain and suffering. Is it possible that we can get compassion overload when we're not impacted anymore? And so there is a righteous anger that is appropriate. And God gets angry because he loves. Jürgen Moltmann said God's wrath is injured love. Love is the source and the basis of the possibility of the wrath of God. The opposite of love is not wrath but indifference. As injured love... The wrath of God is not something that is inflicted, but is a divine suffering of evil. It is a sorrow which goes through his open heart. He suffers in his passion for his people. And here's Jonah upset about a withered plant, and God says effectively, Hello, there's 120,000 people who are about to perish, and you're worried about a plant, and you know what? Sometimes I can be so preoccupied with my little life 
that I'm no longer impacted by images of suffering. Some anger is right. Thirdly, number three, at times God disappoints. At times God disappoints. Jonah's really angry because God doesn't do what Jonah wants him to do. And ironically, as Jonah has a rant, he quotes some of the most beautiful words in the Old Testament about God, gracious. That word is only used of God in Scripture. Compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Let me just say this. If we are going to have any maturity about our Christian lives, we have got to let Jesus disappoint us. You say, what? In fact, I'm going to push it further. If you don't listen to this carefully, you're going to get mad with me. Jesus is disappointing. How come? Jesus disappointed people continuously in his ministry. The Pharisees were, dis were disappointed because he, he didn't wash that. He didn't wash his hands the way they wanted him to. And Peter was disappointed. You can't go to the cross, Jesus. And, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And Judas Iscariot was disappointed with Jesus. Probably a reason that he betrayed him because he wanted him to be a military messiah and kick out those Romans. You see, Jesus is not a vending machine for our desires. He's not a genie in a bottle. He's God. And what that means is we will never experience spiritual maturity unless we have passed through the threshold of disappointment. And I'm looking around here and I wandered into traditions earlier and see some of the lovely folks in there and you've navigated unanswered prayer and difficulty and tragedy and look at you. You have steered through that disappointment. We're going to come back to it in a moment, but you've trusted. At times, we've got to let God disappoint us. Number four. Number four, anger amplifies irritation. Anger amplifies irritation. When you're deeply angry, then it, it bubbles up into trivial situations. We like to be comfortable, and Jonah are really mad when his sunshade was lost. How many of you were here last weekend? Raise your hand if you were here. And I often ask this question, how many of you are here this weekend? <laughs> Good. Pastor, we, we, I've never done this before, but Pastor Darry shared a moment last weekend about those, those chairs that you can buy when you go camping. How many of you remember that? And it was so, when I watched it, it was so good. Uh, if you, if you saw it, I want you to see it again. And if you didn't, just enjoy this right now. I, I get so tickled. I, I, I saw this the other day. There was this chair. Okay, I'm going to just explain it. You're going to know exactly what I mean. It's a piece of canvas or nylon held together by two pieces of aluminum. And you open it like that, and it becomes a seat. You set it on the ground. You take all your body weight off. You just sit down. It's very relaxing. So that's a pretty good invention, right? So next to that was a chair with a backrest. That's even better, right? And then, and then I started looking at the evolution of the, then there was one with a cup holder. So you've got a chair now that, that can take your body weight, you can lean back in it, and you can actually put your drink in a little cup holder. Then next to that was one that reclined. I'm not making this up. It, it, it goes back and your feet are up. You're sitting in the park in a recliner. 
with the drink of your choice, and then they had an umbrella that attached to it. You can sit there with an umbrella. Then they had a little spot that attached a cooler. Then you could add the wheels because you can no longer lift it with the cooler. You can roll it. And then they had holders for your phone and little pads for your keys. And then they had, I'm not making this up, a solar panel that you put on the umbrella that plugs into your device so your phone never runs out. And then a tray for food. And then you could actually add a water mister. Dude, I bought one. (laughs) No, I didn't really. But I might. I just thought to myself, that is so typical of us. I mean, you go from an $8 basic chair to a 300 resort condo chair. It's crazy. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Jonah would have bought that chair. <laughs> and he's mad because his sunshade disappears because of the worm and then the wind, the east wind. You see, when you live angry, you can get irritated about stupid things. I, I, I tried to step outside of my gift mix this week. I, I've often told you I'm practically useless at stuff around the house. I'm just, I'm just not good. And I went to a store and I bought one of those mounting frames for TVs. You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? And I, I said to the 12-year-old serving me, I said, um, I said, do you think I can fix this? And he, he said, sir, any idiot could do this. <laughs> I have an announcement. I'm not just any idiot. And after an hour and a half, I'm muttering and thinking unthinkable things. And my wife's saying things like, how's it going? (laughs) Have you thought about reading the directions? (laughs) And I realized, what am I so angry about? Or that road rage moment, you know, that when a guy just cuts in front of you or he's driving 26 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour limit and and you shake your fist. And then you realize you got a fish on the back of the car. Where's the anger? Some of us live just beneath the surface of our skin. And the thing with anger is it's not a laser beam, it's an explosion. Anger amplifies irritation. Are we living like that? Well, the last thing is this, number five. True faith includes trust. True faith includes trust. Jonah just couldn't cope with God being God. He didn't want Assyria to repent. Sometimes we think we know better, better than God. It's interesting because in the story of Jonah, there are lots of people who say, I don't know. The sailors, they say, when they throw him overboard, they say, who knows? And the king of Nineveh, when he repents, he says, who knows? And Jonah says, I know. I need to say to some of us, hemmed in by question marks of mystery, unresolved questions. Do you know, as I stand on this platform, I suddenly become acutely aware, looking into your faces. This is not just theory. 
I just spent a few moments with the prayer requests that come in every week. I just read through 30 of them 30 minutes ago. Right here, right now, there are people navigating bewildering circumstances. And some of us feel guilty because we don't understand. And I just want to say, I hope it doesn't sound like a cliche or a slogan, it's okay not to know. Jonah always wanted to be in the know. And he needed to trust God. And at the end of the story, God says, shouldn't I be concerned about Nineveh? And the whole thing ends right there. You ever get that in a movie where you're just about to get the answer and it, it, it ends and you're like, no, no. That's how Jonah ends. Maybe God wanting us to give our own answers to the question of whether we'll trust him. In 1842, as I conclude, a man called Joseph Scriven was at Trinity College in Dublin. It was the day before his wedding, and he arranged to meet his beautiful fiancée the day before. They're so excited. She's riding towards him on a horse, and the horse, she and the horse crossed the bridge, and the horse got spooked by the water and threw her off, threw her into the river, and she died. He watched her die the day before their wedding. And then three years later, he moved to Canada and he fell in love with another young lady, Eliza Roche. And they planned their wedding, but she became ill. And before their wedding day could come, she too passed away. Back in Ireland, Joseph's mother was concerned about all of this trial and tragedy. She wrote to him asking him, if he was still trusting God. And he decided to reassure her by writing a poem. I think you know it. The poem goes like this. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Those words were not snapped out by a lyricist who put together a few catchy sentences. But they were birthed from the pain of a man who said to God, I don't get it, but I will trust you. As a pastor right now, here's what I'm feeling. I kind of wish I knew where you were at and I wish I could run around the building and run into traditions and hold your shoulders and look you in the eye and say, may grace allow you 
to keep trusting. Don't hide. When you do, he comes looking because he's passionate about you. And even as I say it, I can, I can almost hear in minds people going, yeah, 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 but, and I understand that. Well, I don't understand it. No one really knows what anybody else is feeling. But may you be strengthened. 